HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on Meat and 3, we're spotlighting the people who prepare our meat before it reaches our plates. We hear from whole animal butchers, the brains behind a meat vending machine, California cattle ranchers, and a master of charcuterie who isn't using meat at all. It's like a smoked and grilled uh, center stock of the broccoli, and then it gets uh, finished with some mustard, barbecue sauce, and sauerkraut. Ranching and farming being as difficult as it is, you know, it's just one thing after another. And at some point, you just give up. I had a wild idea that if I learned butchery, maybe I could start to be kind of a link in the supply chain. Listen to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief with your hosts, Zara Tangora and Bobby Conforto. Uh, Bobby is not with me. She's at her home because we are... Still not at the beloved Heritage Radio Network studios at Roberta's. We are still recording remotely. So just me, as you've come to expect on these intros. But um, hello. Today, we have an amazing show. We are joined by Tucker Schwartz, um, incredible woman. Tucker is the events director for Marlowe Events, which is part of the Marlowe Collective. Um, Marlowe & Sons, Diner, Marlowe & Daughters, Romans, She Wolf Bakery. Um, wonderful collection of eateries here in Brooklyn. Um, Tucker joins us to talk about uh, the fire that burned down her apartment in February of 2019, um, rendering her without a home and without any of her worldly possessions. Uh, it's a very unique and you know very painful. Um, grief, and she was so generous in sharing with us what that experience was like for her. It was illuminating, and it was, um, yeah, it was just a real, a real treat to talk to her. She's a really, um, just deep and wise and wonderful woman, and it was, it was a real, a real pleasure. So, Tucker, thank you so much. Um, we hope you guys enjoy this episode. And thank you for listening to Processing. There's over a million podcasts out there, and yet you found yourself here giving us an hour of your time, and that is 
very kind of you and very generous. And we thank you for that. And uh, if you like this show, please, if you if you are so inclined, um, go on over and leave us a rating and perhaps even a review. And pff, you can subscribe to the show if you don't already. Um, these are the things that really help um, podcasts kind of reach more listeners in these times when there are so many podcasts. Um, it's almost comical. But um, all right, guys, that's it for me, I think. But I hope that you are all hanging in there. We'd love to hear from you. Follow us on Instagram at Processing Podcast. Drop us a line. Send us an email. Processing at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Um, if I don't reply to you right away, it's because I sometimes forget to check that email. But I'm trying to do better at it. But it's never because I'm ignoring you. I can promise you that. Anyway, I'm rambling. So sue me. Um, anyway, <laughs> enjoy our discussion with Tucker. And again, Tucker, thank you so much for your time. This is such a wonderful chat. Okay. Bye guys. So we are joined today by Tucker Schwartz, and Tucker is the events director for Marlowe uh, event, for the Marlowe Collective, part of Marlowe and Sons, Diner, Romans, the, uh, do you guys, it's called the castle, the the space in Red Hook, right? Yes, cool. correct. Awesome. Um, and she is, yeah, she's joining us today to have a little chat about food and grief as we do on this show. Tucker, it is so good to have you. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, where are you joining us from? So now we do video. So before the past couple episodes, we were doing only audio, but it's really nice to be able to kind of peek inside people's situations and homes. Where are you joining us from? I am in Brooklyn. I live in Clinton Hill, and I am on my couch. Yeah, that is a very lovely Where I've been for most of this year. (laughs) I know. We've all gotten to know our couches very well, I think. Yeah, all of my things I've gotten to know very well in the last few months. Yeah. yeah. And actually, Tucker started off by asking us if we could hear her earrings. And the answer is yes. Should but I take them should, off? No, 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 no. You should know, <laughs> folks, that she has the most beautiful kind of sculpture gorgeous. On, on her ears. Yeah. So if you hear this lovely little tinkle, you know it's Tucker. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tucker, what have, let's just, like, kind of get right into it. What have you been cooking lately? Um, I've been cooking a lot. Um, well, I mean, I pretty much cook all of my meals now, which yeah. I did a lot of pre-pandemic. Mm. Um but even more so, even more so now. Um, I mean, really, I can only count on like one hand the number of meals I've had someone else cook for me during this time of quarantine lockdown, mm. um, which is a good thing because um, last year, as well, I'm sure we'll get into more, yeah. um, I didn't end up doing a lot of cooking for myself. And it was a deep sort of rift in my relationship with cooking, which is so nurturing for me on a, a regular basis. Um, yeah. But so, and also it is expanded in this time um so i'm back into doing more things that i used to do a couple years ago um but specifically during the quarantine let's see i mean i typically have always and for like 
over a decade anyway, maybe 15 years even, I've been making things like, I always make yogurt for myself every week. And mm. Ooh, um, homemade yogurt? Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah. And then like granola and crackers, like stocking kind of basic so I can always have things to like snack on. Yeah. So that has been in full force this, this time and I'm in a real good rhythm with it, um, making stock all the time from the chickens that I get. So just a really honed in <laughs> uh, pantry of things to work with, which um, is nice, nice and, and also very meditative for me. Yeah. Um, but have you also gotten back into making, and this just happened during quarantine again, um, is making tortillas, homemade tortillas for myself. Um, and a dear friend of mine lives in Mexico City now and brought me a beautiful clay kamal that I can just put mm. right on the stovetop. Wow. So I needed to get a new um, tortilla press. Um, but once I got that and I found out, I mean, I'm not making them the, I'm not nixmalizing the uh, yeah. <laughs> corn myself and making the masa that way though. That is a process I do want to investigate more in the future, yeah. but I am getting masa finally. Anyway, it took a while wow. for me to get here, but I cannot stop making tacos. And That's I'm exciting. Wow. wow. We so want to come again. Yeah, we're coming over. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's awesome. Where did this, like, when did this start? When did the cooking thing start for you where you became where it became a meditative thing where, because, you know, I think Bobby and I are kind of, we can definitely relate to you in the same way of like, you know, project based, like doing, like getting in the kitchen, turning your, taking your brain offline kind of thing. Like, and it's always interesting to see like where that starts for, for other folks. Definitely in my adult life. Um, I kind of avoided it as a kid and I'm not really sure why it's not, but I didn't like eating. My parents and my family had a very, uh, we had regular meals all the time. My mother, who I don't, necessarily think is a particularly I'll say great cook but yeah. um she did made regular meals she put great effort into having regular meals and that is something that I have kept kept with me um we always sat down for dinner she, you know and it, all vegetables and food groups were represented it was a very um even consistent uh exploration but i think probably in a very mother daughter way i wasn't interested in learning how to cook from her and i yeah. was very much trying to be independent from her um whereas my brother on the other hand loved to cook even as a kid and he would take over like saturday breakfasts or things like that but i just was like no not learning yeah. <laughs> but as soon as i became an adult and it was on my own i um uh I just started exploring it on my own out of necessity and then became really interested in it. But I think it was really, hmm, let's see, I would say probably early 2000s. Mm -hmm. So almost 20 years ago when mm -hmm. I got really interested, I was living in San Francisco and I had been working in restaurants, I guess so maybe it was even before then, but I had been working in restaurants probably since 1996. Oh, and wow. In California, working in restaurants was a huge education for me um, in food and just the way in the relationship that you can have with it and for restaurants in general and my deep affection for restaurants. Um, but I think it was the early 2000s when I was sort of adult enough and had my own kitchen enough and was really making things on my own on a regular basis. Um, and then I think it even honed in even further, um, probably around 
2005, somewhere in there. I remember being, um, I had, I was living not, not totally on my own. I had a roommate, but I wasn't, I wasn't in a relationship. And mm. I, for the first time since I was like a teenager, which was actually a really powerful thing for me. And I spent most of my time cooking. I wanted to be alone. I wanted to just focus on that. And it became like the center of my universe. Um, wow. And it was really powerful, very healing. And it, I haven't stopped. And it's continued since I, it also, I think in a way that time period propelled me to leave San Francisco, a place I had been for a really long time and uh, move into my next phase of life, which was to move to New York, which is a place I knew I always wanted to be in. I just kind of got a little derailed in San Francisco. Yeah. So, so yeah, and it's just kind of built since then, and it hasn't left and is a really powerful, stabilizing force in my life, um, especially, again, since I started things like literally every week making yogurt or I was really into baking bread, though I haven't quite done that as much lately. Mm. Um, but, you know, like things that were re regular and staples. Yeah, totally. Kind of my things. Well, it's interesting when you were saying before about your mom – how, you know, maybe she wasn't, like, the most outstanding, above average cook, but that, like, food seems to have represented normalcy and touchstones of just, like, you know, things that you can kind of go back to, like, just stability, right? So it's, like, sounding totally. to me like, like, that's kind of the early impression that it had on you, and then you kind of built from there and kind of being more creative with it, but still kind of always seemed like it's, like a through line and like a lifeline to you just like touching base with yourself right and your own definitely kind of sense of normalcy and and homeostasis would that be accurate yeah definitely um yeah. I feel like now more than ever but yeah. yes um yeah it's absolutely it's the roots the routineness of it is very therapeutic yeah. um and I know that you know a lot of people have different relationships with cooking for themselves and I know so many folks who are just like, can't bear the idea of coming home after work and making food for themselves because it's exhausting and our lives are exhausting. Like I completely sympathize with that. Yeah. Um, but for me, it's meditative and it's yeah. calming. It's a thing that makes me unwind at the end of the day and it brings me real solace. And I go into my own brain a bit and just actually push out all of the stuff Everything that else, right. taking, totally. you know, totally. taking over. So yeah. It's Bobby, a huge solace. Bobby, I know you can relate to that too. Right? Well, you're describing exactly, you know, exactly how I feel, but I was thinking of a metaphor before. It's like building a fire. We need it to keep warm. And yeah. it feels, it's very meditative to actually do it. It takes work, but you do it because it's what you do. And that's what I Absolutely. feel about cooking too. You just, I do it because it's what I do, you know? And yeah. So it never, even when I'm tired, it never feels like too much because, right. and then mm -hmm. I get into the, the, the creative aspect of in my head and I push everything out. I call it my meditation. Yeah. When you yeah. when you lose your mind, the definition of meditation, when you lose your mind. Right. And that's kind of just to go back to that phrase of like taking your brain offline. Somebody said that once in some podcast I was listening to, but about like, you know, we all have these different ways of just being able to, to do that because we're all like so, you know, consumed by stress of the day or our lives or our pain or our grief or our happiness or our success or whatever it is. It's just like a lot of spinning wheels going on the time. I think we all need something that takes us off, right? And you just like are going into your whatever zone that is. 
um, and cooking. We're, we're kindred. We're, we're kindred that way because in a yeah. way, and on the show, many people we talk to, that's our way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that brings me to wanting to bring up the thing that happened for you in which, you know, you were displaced from being able to kind of go into this taking your brain offline zone because something, you know, very unexpected and tragic happened to you a couple of years ago. Um, that really changes for you. Can you tell us a little bit about, about that experience and what exactly happened? Yes, of course. Um, yeah, it actually was, it was only a year and a half ago. Um, as of last month, last month was a year and a half. Um, so yeah, February of 2019, uh, my apartment burned down. Um, I had been living there for uh, seven years, just literally just under a month, under seven years. And it had become in New York, my most stable living situation. Um, I had bounced around from many other apartments before that. Um, And then this was the one that I had found on my own and anyway, started to really be be home. I don't know. Do you want the blow by blow or yeah. <laughs> how I it mean, happened? However, or... however you want to talk about it. But yeah, I mean, whatever feels like the kind of most organic way for you to tell the story for sure. But okay. yeah, if you want to kind of tell us how, how it came about, that would be, that would be great. And how okay. it impacted your life. Yeah, totally. Um, so it was like three in the morning mm-hmm. and I know this because I woke up, I was sleeping. It was also, this will be important later, but it was, it was like President's Day weekend. So that Sunday going into Monday, so early Monday morning slash President's Day, which Mm -hmm. just meant that uh, my upstairs neighbors who, there's only two flats in the building. um, We were the only occupants of the building other than the businesses that were on the ground floor. they were out of town because they have children and they were, I think that's when the winter break happens for schools in New York city. And, uh, at least the mother and the elder child I knew were, um, out of town. I understood that the father and the younger son were upstairs here for the week. Um, but anyway, otherwise I was alone in my apartment. Um, and there was a, there was a pizza, by the slice place down beneath my apartment. And I was pretty used to on a regular basis what their ovens smelled like when they would turn on and turn off um, at the beginning and ends of their nights. And also just working in restaurants forever. This there's a really visceral smell of what big ovens smell like when they turn on and the you know old grease that starts to heat. And yes. um, so I was really aware of it. And it's, you know, it was something I just noticed every single day. Yeah. Um, and here it was, I was sort of woken up by this smell, but it was odd that it was three in the morning because they're not open at three in the morning. And I didn't right. really put that all together because I was half asleep and uh, I just couldn't really figure it out. And it was very disorienting. Mm-hmm. And I spent a full 30 minutes of getting up and going back to bed, getting up and going back to bed because I couldn't figure out what was going on, but something I knew wasn't right. And there was mm-hmm. nothing visible. I feel like I even stuck my head out my bedroom window, which is directly above the pizza place, just like looking for some evidence of why it would be so smelly. And I couldn't see anything. And I'm like, oh my goodness, did I leave something on in my kitchen, which is up at the other side of the house. So I ran up there, nope, nothing. I think half of my mind thought, oh my goodness, did the 
the, the guys upstairs leave something up on their kitchen and not notice it. Um, I don't know, I was just trying to put it together, but then I'd be like, it's nothing. So I would get back into bed and uh, it became a point there where I had to actually pull the blankets up over my face because the smell was so noxious. And I was like, this, we gotta figure this out. So up again, and this time I walked into my living room and there is a window that faces a, a street lamp and through that window was coming this light. And through that light from the street lamp, I could see that it was sort of foggy in the, in the room. So then I quickly flipped on the light and that's when I saw like billowing smoke coming up through oh the floorboards. God. Oh my um, God. And I was like, okay, I gotta get out of here. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know, I get, I get very much into a, uh, in emergencies, I get very hyper-focused, hyper-organized. I'm not much of a panicky person in, a, in an emergency. I get really focused. Um, so, which is a, a, a good thing in Absolutely. this case. Um, yeah. And I think I realized, um, I realized that it was, you know, after th maybe it was four o'clock at this point. I've actually forgotten the timeline, which I had memorized it at one point. But um, at this point, it's probably close to 4 a.m. And I realize it's 32 degrees outside because it's February. And I'm like, I need to put on pants because I was sleeping in shorts because radiators were so hot. Um, sure. And I threw on my big uh, winter coat. Uh, I put on shoes and I had my phone because I had had it in my hand the whole time and I'm calling 911. Yeah. Um, and, and I just left. And I ran upstairs because I thought the, the father and the boy were still up there and I was banging, 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 yelling, yelling, yelling. At this point, no. Um, fire alarms are going off i had just smelled something um and then saw the smoke um yeah so i'm in the hallway which blessedly the our main door is on the opposite side of the building from where the fire part was like wow. where my fire escape is is where the fire was so i couldn't use that I was oh actually my gosh wow felt lucky that i had the front door to use um anyway so i banged I'm banging on the door. Now the alarms are starting to go off. I'm talking to 911. Anyway, they just told me to get out of the building. So I get out of the building and I'm waiting. It takes nothing. It takes no time at all for, you know, gangs of firefighters to get yeah. there. But it's this very surreal moment. There was a really a brief moment when it's like silent outside. I'm on the street by myself. It's like 30 degrees. And I'm just standing there in this quiet zone. And I, don't, I still don't see really anything other than the smoke I had seen in my room. Like there was nothing visible. I'm like, oh my God, did I make this up? Yeah. Like, what is this? It was, a, it was brief, that fleeting thing. But anyway, show them in. They quickly come downstairs and they realize, you know, it's coming from the pizza place. And they, um, uh, at this point, I'm just watching from the street. We can still see nothing because the pizza parlor has a fully metal roll down gate. So they can't get into it. And we still can't see anything, but we do notice that obviously the smoke is getting more intense in the two units, my apartment and my neighbor's apartment. Oh my and they've now knocked out all the windows and there's like black billowing smoke coming, but we still can't see the source of the fire because they can't get this gate up. So right. we've got a saw. It feels like 10 minutes go by and then they finally uh, the gate snaps up and then it's just like the entire facade of the uh, pizza place is 
orange, bright orange flames. Oh so my it's God. very visual and intense. And I'm just on the sidewalk watching this whole thing. And they very quickly put out the flames in that, um, in that small storefront. And then I'm like, okay, it's over. Now what do I do? Like it's like all this adrenaline and not really sure what to do next. Yeah. And at that second, then poof, I watched my bedroom go up <gasps> in flames because it had been apparently in the walls. Oh, and no. um, so then, yeah, it burns my apartment, which was the directly above the pizza place. And then it goes straight up through my neighbor's apartment, which was above. And then it goes straight to the roof. Mm-hmm. So I yeah, watched it burn through the entire Wow. What building. an in- But it is a brick building, so the facade was still intact, right, but right. internally it was pretty burnt out. I mean, yeah. that's kind of an interesting metaphor for maybe what it feels like to be someone who experiences that, right? Like the facade is still intact, but the inside is, is burnt out. Yeah, and I have a funny memory of, I don't know, maybe it's not funny. Uh, I have a memory of when I was standing out there. Yeah. Um, I just kept like grabbing my limbs like i kept like patting wow. myself on the shoulder my arms i'm like okay you're okay you're, you're not actually damaged because what i was seeing was so horrific but like i wasn't burnt yeah. i wasn't hurt like i'm actually still here like there was a, i had a lot of issues with feeling not visible after after this whole thing yeah. um the trauma of the ptsd so, yeah it was really intense and then also it was really it was starting i didn't feel it for like i must have stood out there for an hour or so and I don't, uh, I was cut cold at some point because it was cold. Um, yeah. And I just, I, at some point I realized I didn't have any socks on. Like that's the one thing I did. I put shoes on, but I didn't manage to put socks on. So my ankles were cold. It was a very, very weird sensations that were happening. Yeah. Um, I can relate to that. I was in a very bad accident. Uh, I don't know, 13, 14 years ago now, but it was terrible. I was in a bus that went off a cliff. And oh, I was like terribly injured. My whole hand was set, like almost severed while my fingers skin was hanging off. But I didn't even realize it Ugh. when I got to the top because of this. We were down like a 40 foot cliff, crawled up to the top. And I was like, all I could think about was like, where, oh, like my shoes are off. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. oh, <laughs> where did my shoes go? And then I was just like, you know what I mean? Because you like, you just go, you it's disassociate. It's the depersonalization. It's, the de- it's in a way you leave your body. You really huh. do. I think you leave your body, but then you just notice certain things. It's a depersonalization. Yeah, yeah. it's really fascinating yeah. what our body does to yeah. protect yeah. us in those moments. Yeah. You have to, I think, I mean, Bobby, I remember you saying this a couple episodes ago. We were talking to a guest about when she had experienced her, when she heard that her dad had died, and we were talking about dis- disassociation. Disassociation, And, and right. that's a survival, you were saying it's kind of like a survival technique, like you almost have to, yeah? Right. Yeah, it's it's the psyche surviving, and so it has to flee in the way it leaves. Mm-hmm. So it kind of floats. You know, most trauma uh, survivors describe that that you know it's almost like another part of you is floating, looking at you. So you just don't experience things the same way. So you just you, know, you notice unusual things. So so what happened? Everything in your uh, in your apartment was gone. What happened? Yeah, pretty much. Um, it, it was funny not knowing what to do in that moment because it was also a weird hour. And again, not only were my neighbors, oh, it ends up that the the, the father and the other son were, were also out of town, but I just oh, didn't wow. know that they had left. So oh, I was the only person in the building. Yeah. Um, 
So I was relieved that. I mean, there was a lot of communicating going on with them. My brother, who was the first person I called and he and I were talking. Um, and then I had to figure out where to go. It was like now probably yeah. five in the morning. And a lot of my friends actually were not in town. A lot of people who have children were not around and right. like in my neighborhood. Um, but one dear friend who was and let me in and took care of me. Um, and then, the, you know, I don't think I slept. I couldn't sleep. But the next by, I don't know, maybe by 11, 10 or 11 the next same day, <laughs> um, I went back and ah, foolishly, my um, I, f I really feel like he should not have allowed me to go in, even though I wanted to. But my landlord was like, yeah, it's fine. Go in. And, uh, you know, better you better grab anything you want now because basically this is going to get shut down. And na naively, not knowing what I was walking into, I mean, a, it could have been unsafe just to walk around up there. Of course. Um, right, absolutely. What we found out days later, um, or maybe it was only one day later, I couldn't, the days were blurring, but I think it was days later I found out that um, it was the whole, there was asbestos in the walls. Oh. So, so basically though, my whole living space was completely gone. Uh, everything was gone. Uh, there were heaps of like things like clothing and I don't know, pieces of furniture, but that were broken. Like there were some things that weren't burnt. A lot of damage happens because of the hoses that they use. Um, mm. And then when I found out asbestos was everywhere, it was just like yeah. gnarly. Yeah. But I think as I mentioned before, my kitchen was up in the front uh, part of the building. We were we were on a corner, so anyway, it was in the. It was actually not, the kitchen wasn't touched. There was a lot of smoke damage, but it wasn't touched Yeah. in that sense. Like the walls were still intact. Um, there hadn't been that much damage. So I was actually able to get much of my kitchen out. I went through this whole thing. Like it was very deranged feeling of like right. pulling it all out and, and took it out. And then I found out about the asbestos. And so then I freaked out um, and ended up throwing out most of my kitchen stuff. Yeah. Um, which was heartbreaking, but I also went through a, another sort of, you know, also felt deranged process of the stuff that I did keep of doing this insane, like tr quadruple bath of, you know, soap and water and whatever I thought needed to happen to make the asbestos go away and make it safe. Yeah. I didn't keep anything that had wood. A, just, ritual, a ritual of cleansing. Sounds like totally. Which is another weird thing now with all the hand washing I'm getting. Right. So yeah. it's like, yeah. So, so help <laughs> us understand, echoing. how did you deal in life at that point with having lost everything? And how did that, where, what were the things that helped you uh, find your way? Um, well, I don't know. I think I'm still finding my way in a, yeah. a, a bit. Um, I had amazing support from my community, uh, mm. friends, family, just the neighborhood. It, it's it was an outpouring that I had never witnessed before. That was really, um, it really shook me and connected me deeper to this, to this, um, this city and, and this neighborhood. Um, and I don't know, I spent a lot of time feeling really weightless and weird and invisible. And, uh, it was, that was a very, that was the, like the early, uh, traumatic parts of it, um, were, yeah pretty ghost-like. Yeah. Um, and then I got busy. I think the busyness took over. Um, I had to find a place to live. And then as soon as I did find a place to live and I felt deeply grateful, my, where I live now is 
like two blocks from where I used to live, where the house oh, burned down, because yeah. I love this neighborhood and I didn't want to leave and yeah. I felt very kicked out and I didn't, I wanted to come back. So anyway, all that was working. Good, it, was, good. It's a, it was a very busy thing. Like, okay, I have nothing. I have right. to, I, well, you know, in the early days, like I just needed underwear and I needed like really basic things to put on my body. Yeah, totally. And then by the time I had an actual physical place to live, I'm like, I need a bed. I need a couch. I need, you know, like I needed, right. and I live in a studio now, which is not the format that I was living in before. So it was a new situation, which is fine. Like I don't, in a way, having less space was, um, was better. Cause I had you know less what you're, to what fill. you're describing is what, most people go through when they, you know, in a way, any kind of great loss and trauma, you lose every, everything gets wiped away. It's like the rug gets pulled out from under you and how you reground yourself. What I'm hearing is that your apartment was so much before was your ground. You said it, it was, was a place, you know, is my ground. And so it's not unusual that you describe feeling so weightless because you lost your groundedness. And it sounds like getting busy again, right? Getting moving one foot in front of the other, which is what how we all start out, you know, after a trauma like an accident or a loss or anything, and that that's what got your engine going, you know, regrounded again. So what totally. happened there? Yeah, um, I just started to slowly sort of integrate myself into this new existence, and I was really it went from this thing of actually not only feeling weightless from the loss, um, but then also feeling a lightness. From actually not having all the stuff that I had. Like there was a sort of silver lining to it that I was like, oh, maybe it's nice to not have all this sort of baggage of the past. Um, and then I, I don't think I have any solid answers about this, but um, my relationship to possessions is totally different now. And I've always been a bit of a minimalist, but you know, stuff piles up after a while, no matter how minimal you are. And this is a huge clearing. Like there's no evidence of my life before me now, uh, who I am today, which is, is nice. Like I have a very, like I'm, I'm I am my most evolved self right now. And so yeah. to have that reflected back at me at all times is very reassuring, but there's, there's almost like the demons or anything you might want to hide in the closet is only up here. It doesn't, I mean, I don't have mm. any physical evidence of it. So it's been a very interesting, mm. uh, tangle with my identity. Yeah. I feel like I, um, you know, there's also things that were physical manifestations of a different self, um, that do not exist anymore. Those, those objects. And that's hard. Um, but I don't know, it's been a slow, um, regrouping with myself and my home and making it very, another grounded place for myself. Cause that is something that is very important to me. Um, and then also I dove into work both because work was busy and it needed my attention and also because it was a convenient way to distract myself. And I, you know, that was a good and bad thing. Like it, it probably, it needed to happen and it propelled me through the year, but whew, by the end of the year, I was broken. I was nearly broken. By the time I came to the anniversary of the fire, yeah. I don't know. I was, I did not feel good. Like I was feeling a deep, a much deeper level of stress about it all. Right. And then of course, of course we have our new collective right? trauma. Totally. <laughs> so it's just been like two years of like, it's what's going a lot on? Of change. <laughs> I think it's interesting. You were touching on, I think just some of the, you know, we are conditioned, I think uh, societally to think of grief in this very predictable kind of like linear way. 
that like a bad thing happens, it's traumatic, you cry for X amount of time, uh, people bring you X things, and then you go back and like, you know, you think about it only during this time. It's like very clean in a way, and we try not to even think about it too much societally, what grief means, but really it's like this complex, very interesting experience and all these things happen that I think you would have never been able to assume. And some of them are positive. And I think that that's mm-hmm. really hard to admit, especially when people. Yeah, it's very hard right? to admit. Like, I feel almost guilty sometimes being like, right. it's, it's nice it's, to not have it all. It's right. actually age old. That crisis is both danger and opportunity. Right. You know, yeah. it is. And so that's what you're talking about. It's- some of those things that I think we learn in a, in a terrible traumatic experience or in deep grief or loss you can only learn then. And it's like, you know, if you were given the, the bargain, hey, do you want to learn this lesson, but you have to lose your home or your oh, husband right. or, what, or your arm or whatever, you'd say, no, thank you. But sure. then when it actually happens, like you were talking earlier about community and like the kind of mm. outpouring of kindness that people, and like real deep kindness, right? The kind yeah. that like rattles you like extremely. Um, that you never find out until something really, really terrible happens, you know? And, like, that's an incredible thing to learn. When you're talking about, and yesterday when I was reading through kind of your pre-interview stuff, like, it really shook me into the incredible, and I wouldn't, I don't want to say gift, but if that's not how it feels to you, but this incredible life-changing thing that a lot of people never get, and and thankfully to them because it's a terrible thing to have your home burned down but of learning to what it is to be in the world stripped of your identity in a lot of ways and the things you have collected to to say this is my identity and then here you are at this point where you're like oh wait like I'm like very naked but what a what an interesting opportunity to like re-examine who you are and like that's the thing I think we don't look at a lot about grief is the incredible opportunities that come out of it that, you know, again, you'd never agree to ahead of time, but you have to, you have to recreate yourself because everything is lost and that's what it feels like. Yeah. Yeah. So what kind of of things have you been able, so you've taken this, this terrible loss and all this, you know, being really pared down. You said you felt really invisible, which I think is such an interesting way of putting it. And I, I kind of want to hear more about that too, but like, what are some of the takeaways now a year and a half out of it that you like, where are you, who are you now, as opposed to who you were a year and a half ago? I don't know, because I think it's a little bit of a one, two punch here, um, with, uh, the quarantine lockdown. Mm-hmm. Um, because I was so busy last year, I didn't have a lot of time to process it. I do remember very starkly, though, somewhere in the summer of last year, after I had moved into my new place, I had very efficiently, you know, I got a bed, I got a couch, I made my kitchen how I like it, you know, like, I'm really good at that kind of stuff. And also, it was really important for me to get that in place quickly, because I knew that I would feel even more like I was floating if I didn't have an opportunity to create my home routines as I was yeah. used to. Um, so I did that really quickly. And in that busyness, I didn't have time to process the like sort of raw emotional part of it. So I remember very distinctly somewhere in the summer being like, oh, I don't have like X number of things to do on my downtime when I'm not working that, inc- you know, include filling this 
small apartment with things. Yeah. Um, what do I do now? And that's when like, whoo, it all came up to the surface and um, just like insane bouts of tears yeah. and all the really emotional stuff came up. Um, but that was a fleeting, a brief moment because then September usually is the onslaught of insane busy season. Yeah. And I didn't even breathe again until January. Um, and so having more downtime in the last six months to actually process everything has been super helpful. Like I've developed a relationship with these new items that I didn't have a history with, um, the new things mm -hmm. I surround myself. Um, I guess, what have I learned? There's, I mean, there's a, I think I always knew this, but there is, it was reinforced sort of a reassurance that who we are in our core can't really be erased and can't be disappeared by a fire or mm -hmm. no matter how invisible I felt like, or how much I felt like people couldn't see me, um, that was fleeting and that I was able to basically recreate. I don't, I, God, I, I don't know if I've reinvented myself or not, or if I've just made it all over again. Like I knew how to like, I knew what I was and I've, I've rebuilt it around myself in a way. I, I think it's more pared down. I think it's more nuanced. I think it has, it has, well, it has less stuff. I know that it, much. It, it, you mean you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my life. I guess my life I meant. Yeah. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. It has shifted my priorities a mm. bit. Um, and that certainly has been coupled with this downtime in the last six months of trying to figure out, um, you know, seeing things from a larger picture and figuring out what's important. Uh, the One of the bigger things that I lost, um, and I was kind of losing it anyway, uh, was my life as a visual artist, which is how I started my adulthood mm. like when I went to college, I guess. I don't know. Um, and it is also a life that I participated in for a really long time, but and did even a bit when I moved to New York, but it was, it's been slowly disappearing from my life. Um, but the home that just burned down had like the last vestiges of all of that. Like any artwork I had made, all of my um, art supplies. Uh, I also did a lot of things with fabric and um, I had a beautiful um, industrial sewing machine that I used all, you know, and I was still using these things. And these are things that I forget that I don't have anymore, but I don't because I wasn't using them necessarily as regularly. Okay. Anyway, so there's, there's some moments there where there's a sort of like push pull of like, am I that person still? I mean, I have found ways to be creative um, since the fire that don't require, you know, art supplies or studio space. I've been writing more, so that's been helpful. I mean, the kitchen has always been a, a, a deep place for creativity for me, mm -hmm. um, but also for nurturing. Um, so I don't know. I think I'm still in the process of it. I don't know that yeah. I know the full answer. So you know, you're, you're describing, um, as you describe this, you're describing a very important task of grief, you know, that used to think that there were stages of grief, like Zara was talking about, and this is predictable linear thing, but really there's certain jobs we have to do. And one of the most important ones is, um, you know, accepting the reality of the loss and we don't have to do it right away. You did it at, you know, the busyness and everything that happened delayed that for a while. But we can continue to regrieve. You know, we always regrieve in our lives. So we have our whole life to regrieve. But yeah. the other task is the who am I now without, and normally it's without that person. I was going to say that. You're saying, say that. who am I now without the me? 
in my life that I knew I, if, I, I think Zara and I are both very touched by the fact that you lost your artwork. So we've always admired that my mom was a painter and my father's a sculptor and Zara's artwork is around. And um, so we can really, really appreciate her dad was an artist. We have so many things that he made. Mm -hmm. So the loss of that is, is, you know, I can really feel the pain of that. You too, Zara. Well, yeah. And I mean, you know, I was just, I was thinking the exact same thing. It's just that in, in loss. And also I think it ties into, for me, what you were saying about feeling invisible is that like, I mean, I think in grief, we feel alienated. I feel like there's something about deep grief and deep loss that like, you know, even though everybody does experience it at some point in their life, we don't talk about it enough to where it feels like we're connected in that in a community way. So I think I at least know for myself, I can connect with what you're saying. Like after my dad died, I, um, I couldn't look anybody in the eye for a long time. I, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's when you're talking about the invisible feeling, like I kind of felt that way. Cause I'm like, none of these people understand how much pain I'm in. So I can't even look at them. And I, I wanted to be invisible. I felt kind of invisible too. And yeah, I think just like in that also like thinking about how do you come back to life and define yourself and carve out an actual, you know, a silhouette for yourself as a person again, once the things that you thought defined you, whether it's that person that you lost or, or your things and disappear. And I think also, you know, we talk a lot about in, uh, there's some kind of sense of like, well, think material things are just things. And if you can say something like that, you're a, somehow elevated to whatever, <laughs> you know what I mean? You've understood right. something about life, but like in another way, like they're kind of every, you know what I mean? Like your first, I was reading in preparation for our interview about people who have lost things in fires. And this woman was talking about, you know, I try to remember the, let the birthday cards, from my mom who's passed away now, you yeah. know what I mean? That I have tucked in my drawer and my, my first stuffed animal and, you know, like all these hand-me-downs and like life is fleeting. Everything is like this. Right. So in some way, yes. as much as it's, it's material, it's, it's, but it's the remember part, part. That's what I'm hearing. You're saying, yeah. how do we remember those things? If we lose the item, how do we, are they part of us? Are they then an inner part of us? You know, it's the inner relationship that we have that continues but sometimes it's scary. You don't feel that right away. I think when you first lose things, you know? Yeah, totally. You feel like, how am I going to, um, how am I going to remember these things? I actually had a good example today. Um, the date that we are recording this, um, which maybe not when everyone is hearing this is September yeah. 11th. And yeah. every year I always post this photograph of myself as a child on my very first trip to New York. I was 11 years old and the twin towers are in the background of the photograph. Mm. And I've posted it every year, but somehow I couldn't do it last year because that is one of the biggest things that I lost that really still hurts. Like the artwork mm. and my family photos are just all gone. Of course, mm. I have digital records of it because I've posted it for every year, in the, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I did find, blessedly, I did find some other childhood photos that I had done the same thing where I'd just gone around and photographed them with my phone and so have Sorry. records of them, thank goodness. Um, but yeah. Another very interesting thing happened. Oh, so I did. I did repost it today for the first okay. time again. So that felt good. But um, uh, last Thanksgiving, so you know, whatever that's been like, you know, eight months or whatever from the fire. Um, yeah. I my mother was moving from her home that she's been in for twenty plus years, and I had when I moved from San Francisco to New York. 
I had left a bunch of stuff in her basement that I had basically forgotten about. So it was a very even weirder situation to go with my brother over Thanksgiving to help her get her house cleaned up so she could move um, and be faced with all of the stuff that I still had that I, there was actually evidence of me as a younger person and other right. parts of my life in her basement that I had completely forgotten about already. And to be faced with that after having gotten so comfortable with not having any uh, evidence so was really like, ah, it was very bizarre. And yeah. I ended up throwing most of it out. Um, right. I kept some parts, even the parts that I did not want to look at, like horrible pictures from teenage life that, um, or college or something I didn't care to look at again. But I kept them because you're like, you might want these in the future. Like, yeah. hold on to them for now. A small box. I have a shoe box now size yeah. that I decided to keep. Um, so I don't know. It, I, I don't know if I'll need them maybe in another year or so I won't want them anymore. But um, mm -hmm. it is a really fascinating um, mm -hmm. journey that I've been on learning about yeah these things we collect to remember ourselves um and finding new meaning because that's you know yeah. another task of life after who am i now without that that i've lost is well what's my new meaning because that part of the past was my meaning so right. it sounds like you've also been evolving in that way too does that feel true for you yeah definitely um yeah, there was a very real sense of feeling like I didn't have any evidence of my existence, and that really bothered me. Um, it played into the feeling invisible. Um, there was a, another weird moment right early on. I was staying at a friend's house right after the fire, and people were so graciously bringing me clothes and all sorts of gifts. And one friend actually brought me makeup, which I thought was like the thing I hadn't even thought about. Totally. And I had, I mean, I'd literally been just like not wearing clothes that I would normally choose. Like I was just wearing whatever people gave me. Um, I was managing to shower and feed myself and like do really basic things, but I hadn't even thought about like putting on makeup. And I remember when I had it, I, I put way too much on. I looked in the mirror and I'm like, oh my God, like as if in a way to like make myself more visible, I put on like way too much makeup. It was very funny. That's really um, funny that you like say that. The, I, did the building same, I did the same <laughs> yeah. thing actually, like almost so literally the exact same thing. Yeah, after my dad died and I had gone through, a, you know, I also actually lost my home at that same time for a different reason, but I had been planning to move in with a boyfriend he dumped me right after my dad died and I lost my apartment and I didn't have a place for like four months I lived at Bobby's house uh so I kind of you know in some small ways can relate to the feeling of just being like Ugh. um but I did the same thing I was like I haven't put on any makeup for it. so I went to Sephora and bought <laughs> makeup and put and also put on so much <laughs> like way too much <laughs> like what like in the mirror I was like what the fuck and I was like, okay, this is different. I think maybe there's a middle ground here, but yeah. So it was just, it was so evident that I needed to be seen and I wanted yeah. to like, it came out in this very strange way yeah. um, <laughs> that luckily didn't last that long. <laughs> We're all talking about, you know, in our, in our traumas that have happened, because I was actually thinking, and you said this about a very quickly trauma that happened to me, that Zara um, was about two at this point and we had moved to Florida and I started a business, their food business, and it didn't work. And I lost everything. I actually had to mm. claim bankruptcy. And um, we had what we had to sell everything in our apartment. We had to just sell it all because we just couldn't. We were moving back to Zara's dad's house and little teeny, his family house, little rooms. So we sold everything we had, every single belonging, except for a trunk that we had. And we had this trunk on the top of the car. And we all drove back, the three of us back in North Carolina. We stopped at a motel. We went out in the morning and the trunk was gone. Oh, <laughs> so, no. so I was thinking as you told this story. So in some ways, you know, 
we all we have these experiences of the abyss of really just the unknown of just it's a floating around it's like being on another planet somewhere and being in a new atmosphere right and Definitely. then you have to somehow find your ground put things back together again it's just it's such a powerful thing so how did food uh play into this with the you didn't have a kitchen and you didn't and you were telling us i guess before that you began to slowly over the last year um start to find that as a resource again yeah it was like a tiptoeing back into it i think i didn't eat at home much last year i think mm. that's what it really got down to um partly because being so busy with work but also because i just didn't wasn't set up in the right way um i mean it just got really basic um i mean breakfast has always been a really important meal for me i'm not actually sure why but i like mornings in general and there's something yeah. very uh I don't know. It feels almost spiritual, like the starting the morning that way. Um, totally. So I think I put a lot of effort into breakfast, but it's also like I cook pretty simply as well. So it's, you know, and, and with routine and I, it's all the things I like. And I put a lot of attention into each little detail, but it's not fancy cooking. So I just feel like it was it was a slow uh, regrouping with it. Um, like recuperation. I I, it sounds like yeah. recuperating. Yeah. And it, it's taken until this time when I've had more time on my own and out of necessity to like rebuild my pantry. I think I also mentioned in that pre questionnaire that I, um, you know, like it was only like two months ago at this point during lockdown that I decided I needed to like buy spices. Like that's something I hadn't totally. even regrouped with like I've been using salt pepper and chili flakes for a full <laughs> year plus yeah. whatever it was a couple of you know months ago and I was like you know and I just I actually just ordered it all in um because we are ordering everything in I guess yeah. <laughs> in the spring um uh and I'm thrilled to have it it expands the repertoire again and so yeah. that is that is comforting and I feel a little bit more connected to myself who is is fairly adventurous with my cooking and my eating and able to provide for myself. Yeah, I think I I think last year I just spent more time eating out and you know, not not nurturing myself quite in the way that I've been able to in the last 6 months. Mm. Um so that's been a weird blessing. I think that like right in the face and the wake of loss and uh tragedy and you kind of learn what you can live with that it's most minimal whatever that is like emotionally or you know, how little effort you can put into throwing clothes on in the morning, how like simply right. you can eat and you kind of build from there. And then I think it actually gives you, if you want it to, or let it, um, this moment where you can then decide what you want to add back in that's for pleasure. You know what I mean? And totally. that like adds to your life. And I think when you're talking about like, you realize that like life can sustain for you and in in a almost probably beautiful simplicity of putting salt and pepper and olive oil and chili flake on, you know, a tomato. And that's lovely. But then like, there's something about when you're talking about ordering the spices. And again, that's like your choice towards what you've decided you want to be the extras in life, you know, and like, like, I think after someone has like a spouse die or something, you know, you realize that yes, you can survive in this x y and z way you can make like smaller portions of meals you can figure out how to pick 
a routine to get the kids from school. Like there's all kinds of things people realize they can do. And then at some point you're like, okay, but what joy do I want to actually add back in? And when am I ready for it? And what increments can that happen? Does that feel accurate to like your situation at all? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I just like only was able to do what I was able to do. And, uh, then yeah, slowly building from there, um, has been, the story of this whole process. Um, it also came in the form of acquiring things too. Like I, after having nothing, like I didn't want anything. Like mm. I still actually don't have that much stuff. And I, I, one thing I haven't been able to purchase at all is books, which I find mm. really interesting. I think because they're so physically heavy, Yeah, <laughs> the idea of having to have them has been really hard and sensitive. Like I had so many cookbooks, so many art books, so many mm. things that were important to me. Um, but for some reason, like that's the one thing I've stayed away from. I now use the library like a mad person and I love it. It's a hugely important relationship. I've been reading oh, more than ever during this um, last six months, which is amazing, but I don't own books. Um, mm. So it's a very strange thing, but I, I felt really sensitive. Like, and even when people want to give me things, which has been amazing, like the amount of gifts and things that people want to give, I'm also almost like I can't handle more things. I can only handle this amount of stuff, which fits in this very small room. I live in a studio. It's like, it's really about parsing it out. Like I can't handle more than this. And that's worked for me. And it's, I think worked the same way with food. It's like, I can only handle making yogurt and eating toast and, you know, really simple cooking. And now, now I can get into bigger projects or, you know, things that I used to do on a more regular basis. I think you brought up something really important, actually, in grief. Another thing that I noticed, it is the recuperation. And anybody that's recuperated physically from something, you have to go so slow and you have to have your sensors up so high to, that's too much. That's okay. You know, you really get so sensitive to what you can handle and what you can't. And it's part of self-care. So, you know, that's, it's very, um, you were recuperating all this time. Yeah. So and we I always, did, I'm sorry. Oh, okay. No, go ahead. <laughs> it's okay. Um, I was also thinking about something Zara said earlier about uh, grief being very lonely and about aloneness. Mm. And that is also another huge thread that's been running through my life. But that even started back when we were talking about when I started living alone, making food for myself, wanting to be alone. Like that, we're, we're almost at 15 years of this being alone situation. Mm. And, um, it's got even like a brighter light has even been shown on it since this uh, fire, which is how alone I felt in the moment. Like again, completely invisible watching my house Mm -hmm. burn down. Like there was tons of people who moved onto the street in the middle of the night because of this was a big to do in the neighborhood. Um, But nobody knew it was my house. It was very Mm. funny. I was part of the crowd, but completely Mm. invisible. And I actually just walked away from the scene at one point because I needed to leave and I don't know. I think I still have been grappling with what it feels like to be alone. And I continue to even maybe be even more alone than ever, especially this year. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. How does that feel for you? It's, it's, I don't know. I, it is something I'm still dealing with. And I do feel that I want more uh, connection, but I'm, I mean, again, I also live alone. I don't have a partner or children yeah. or, you know, I don't have an extended family right around me. So yeah. I like it. Like it is my comfort zone, but I do wonder if it's time to sort of break that open a little bit. Yeah. And when we are allowed to hang out with other people, I will do that. But um, right. So, so I call that holding the question. You just put 
maybe it would be good to hang out a little more. Yeah, it's right out there. Yeah. People so always actually, ask me, like, don't you get lonely? And I'm like, I don't really get lonely. I'm very built for alone time. Yeah. Um, but this this last couple of years have, have pushed me in a way that um, I didn't see coming. So there's totally. That. And that's that's always how it goes. Right. Like, I, I mean, I feel like those big lessons in life, like we kind of think of it as like we're in the ocean and we get to, you know, we're like having a great time and splashing around and playing. And like, that's like not when the big lesson happens, right? Like the big right. lesson happens when like the rogue wave comes out and smashes exactly. you to the ground Ooh, and pulls you out a little bit. Oh, yeah, <laughs> And that sucks because it would be so much better to get to like learn all these things while you're like, exactly. you know, having a great time and splashing around. But it really, it, I mean, I really think that those things happen when you get like really knocked on your ass hard. And that's very unfortunate because it's not yeah. convenient, but I think it's true. And to take that metaphor a step further, you know, one of the things that I talk about in healing and recovery is like riding the wave. So it's like, you're out there now the big wave has come and now you want to ride it. You don't want to go under. So you, you have to find that way to keep moving and keep you know, flex. So we got a the image of you riding here, the right? wave. I like sorry, it. I like it. Sorry, our <laughs> listeners can't see you, but like, Bobby, your image of riding a wave is the cutest thing I've ever seen. You're like, I'm it's you're very cute. The wave. You're the cutest wave rider I ever saw. <laughs> so it brings us to a question that we always like to ask each client. Each client. I'm sorry. I apologize. Each guest, each person. <laughs> sorry. Take it. Take it over. The question is, if you could have told yourself one thing at the beginning of this experience that, you know, one bit of advice, uh, knowing kind of what you know now, uh, what would that be? Oof, I don't know. Um, I don't know, because I think I learned it right exactly when it was happening. Um, and I actually did... I did hear it right at the beginning, but I didn't hear it from my own self. Uh, I had a friend um, who said it to me. Literally, she was the one who was home when I needed a place to go mm. at five in the morning. And she's like, you're really going to learn how to receive in the middle of all of this. And wow. that is something I didn't fully understand when she said it, though I appreciated it. Um, and I think it's just grown since mm. is it is about that opening up and letting people in because I am very self-sufficient and have been for a long time, but the allowing people in uh, is by far the biggest lesson that I did learn. Um, And I didn't even have a little hint of it though early on. So Mm. I guess it's just been reinforced in the last year and a half. That's very, very, very powerful. Like, uh, yeah, it was great advice or great, uh, just sage knowledge coming from this friend who Very is really good like that. So yeah, I treasure wow. that. And now yeah. your sage knowledge. Now yes, exactly. I know. I can, yeah. I can spread it around. Sure. <laughs> but that can be a really tough thing. And it's very hard, I think, to know in the middle of crisis, like what you need or how to let people in or, or if that's yeah. okay, or, you know, is that safe? And I, you know, especially if you're someone who's really used to doing things on your own, I'm, I can relate to you in that way. I'm similar. I've lived alone for a really long time and feel comfortable in that zone. And so it is really hard. And um, it is one of the many lessons that we learn only in, in the smashing wave vibe is uh, how to like really rely on other people and what that what that means and what it looks like and it's very you know it's also very uncomfortable sometimes 
which I think is totally. a thing that not a lot of people talk about. You know, again, we're meant to like understand grief as being this like certain kind of thing, but like, you know, getting help from other people is not fun. It is uncomfortable. Sometimes they give it and you don't want it and it results in it's not like, what you want. Yeah. You know, misunderstandings and arguments with friends or bad feelings or whatever. So it's not always comfortable, but it is an interesting and, and very important lesson. That's beautiful the way you put it. Yeah, and brings us to that quote that we somehow weave into every single um, uh, session that we have, which is uh, Victor Frankl said, survival is a community event. So I'm glad that you had that support out there, and I'm glad you could share with us and share with the community listening, you know, your story. It was very, very interesting story about loss, and you're a great survivor. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It's yeah. been lovely speaking with you Me both. Too. And just like an interesting day too, because just to mention, you know, because it is September 11th when we're recording this and we are experiencing like wildfires that are destroying the entire like West Coast at this point. Um, and just one last thing I want to talk about before we go is just the the rapidness of fire and of disaster. It happens Ooh, so yeah. quickly. And I think when you experience something like that, that happens out of the blue like that and you see how how literally fast a fire moves is such an interesting metaphor for just like you know grief and in general like it just like rips everything I mean and obviously you saw that firsthand it rips everything away so quickly and really I think just shakes your sense of realizing how unstable the world can be you know and our lives are yeah shocking the power of nature our lack of control Oh, totally. Yeah. I still feel like I keep a kind of a safe distance from like when I saw my bedroom go up in flames and knowing that I was in that bedroom asleep, sound asleep in the middle of the night, like only, I don't know, 40 minutes from when I saw, you know, like, yeah, I keep us, I still haven't really gone there to feel that. Um, but it's, it's also, it's visually so powerful, like seeing, I know I shared some pictures with your video, um, the flames are so insane and so intense yeah. and seeing the, all these posts lately of people posting from San Francisco, a city I lived in for 13 years, yeah. um, co- like cloaked in this insane orange. I don't know. It's so surreal. I don't really know how to take it all in, but yeah, the fire part is, it's really powerful. It is. Yeah. yeah. We have, we are learning a lot this year. I know that. We are. Yeah. And Bobby and I just talked about this. We just recorded before this just an episode with just the two of us. And we spoke a lot about the importance of community during this time and how there was oh, such nice. a sense of community on September 11th uh, in a certain yes. way. And how during this time of coronavirus and, you know, just like given our political landscape of such division that is streaming down from the top in a very bizarre, negative way, that like there's not um as much community and you touched on community with you know the healing and your fire and just as a i guess reminder to folks in this episode of the importance of community and the importance of like you know trying to remember how that important how important that is to folks who are suffering in you know whether it's a fire whether it's losing your job there's so much loss and tragedy during this time in life and you know we were able to kind of come together around the event of September 11th for various reasons but um you know it's important to do that now and just remember to folks out there that there are people who are losing everything rapidly and quickly and that like you know it's it is a community event because a lot of these folks are not being helped by by the government and it's important for us to all just remember that uh you know these are our neighbors and our friends and they need our help 
So that's just a little tangent there, but it just prompted me. To <laughs> no, I, I say couldn't that. agree more. Yeah. I, it is, again, something I learned with the fire, but it's only been hit home with the virus, with um, all the tragedies uh, around the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests, and obviously these wildfires. Like, anyway, the, the, September 11th, like it just yeah. goes on and on and on. All of these, um, it's, yeah, community is so powerful for it sure. Is. Um, it is really powerful. And that it's, it's booing. Um, yeah. And that's what this show is about. We really appreciate your, your vulnerability and sharing your story. and So much so. Um, yeah. yeah. Cheers. Thank you for having yeah. me. It's no, been, thank, um, thank you. Oh, I'm sorry to, mean, to cut you off. No, this one, it's been a great relief to talk about it. You know, yeah. I hadn't really talked about it much until more recently. So yeah, it's been nice to revisit and, you know, reflect a bit. Thanks. Thanks for opening up. And I think it really, like, you know, I think that we we have all these different ideas, like death is the you know, that's the grief and the loss, but really like we're, we all experience these losses in different ways. And I think it's interesting how, you know, I've had a loss in terms of like a death of a parent, but hearing your story and about like how, you know, you felt invisible about how you kind of restarted and refreshed. Like it's, you know, I can say on my end, it's really helpful for me in thinking about my own grieving and I'm sure commonality too. And there is something about fire that is such a clean slate and such a devastation that I think it's just a really, really relatable story. And I thank you so much for coming on and sharing with us. It was awesome. And your earrings are absolutely gorgeous. Where, where, <laughs> do you mind telling us Thanks. where they're from? Because I hope they're, they're not too distracting. They're so anyway. beautiful. Are they like, a, is it like a handmade item? Yeah. Like, there's um, a festival that just happens. I live in Clinton Hill, but down in Fort Green near BAM, there's a festival every, I think it's in May. Yeah. I, don't know. I know I had just moved into this new apartment and I, I mean, I had no jewelry. I had nothing. Like yeah. I had nothing. Yeah. Um, and I remember walking through the stalls of this um, little outdoor market and these just, yeah, struck me. And yeah. I bought them from the woman who was making them right there. Anyway, <laughs> I'm really happy to have them. <laughs> They're really gorgeous. Um, well, thank you so much, Tucker, and enjoy the rest of this weekend and this day and your year and your new apartment. And we send you all our good vibes and blessings for your new home and your new space. Oh, thank you so much. And right Take back care. to both Talk of you. Talk to you later. <laughs> Bye. Bye. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. 
Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that Processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.